0: Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Okay. have to worry about ranking. All right, if a colonel slips out, I'm sorry, oh, no. That's all right. all <laughs> but I appreciate it, David. Yeah. Um, thank you uh, so much, sir, for, for coming on the show today. And uh, I'm really excited about this topic. And, and I feel like this is going to be extremely value add uh, for, for airmen across you know, the logistics enterprise, but I mean, really across the entire Department of Defense. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the
1: opportunity, and uh, you know it's always good to be able to engage with people who are doing the real work out there. You know, now that uh, that I'm retired, I really, you know, watch all the things that you guys are doing, and uh, and I'm just happy to uh, be able to talk to you and try to make a little contribution of, you know, from my experience, and uh, because, like I said, you guys are doing the hard work out there for our nation, so I'm very appreciative of uh,
0: of all the work that you do. Well, I- I'm personally appreciative of the work that that you've put in for decades um you have a quite an incredible track record career um you know in uniform and out and uh you know thank thank you for your service sir um but also uh why don't you take us like down your career a little bit and share your share your background with our audience
1: sure um, so yeah i spent 30 years in the army uh, commissioned from uh, officer candidate school in 1981 um, and uh, retired in 2011. Uh, I started out in the infantry uh, as, a, as a young infantry officer, uh, served at Fort Hood, and then in Germany. Uh, I left Germany in 1985 as a young captain to go to the advanced course at Fort Benning. Um, and at the time they, they wanted to uh, send me to Fort Jackson, South Carolina to train soldiers, to be a basic training company commander. Um, and while that's important, and, and I, you know, we need the people in those jobs. As a young young officer, I I wasn't ready to go do that. I I wanted to go do cool things, and I wanted to go to the 82nd Airborne or the 101st. And but the assignments officer, or detailer, or I forget what uh, the Air Force calls uh, those uh, in the personnel management uh, uh, division there, but. Uh, they, they said, no, I've had too much time with troops, and I needed to go have experience training. And then I said, well, what about Korea? And they said, you want to go to Korea? And I said, sure, I'll go to Korea. And he was so happy to have a captain volunteer to go to Korea. Uh, in my orders from Germany to Fort Benning, they put in the remarks that officer has accepted follow-on assignment to Korea. And so I went to Korea in 1986. and uh, And I really have spent every year in Korea since then, except 1995. And then my last trip to Korea was in January 2020 for COVID. And then I went back three times this summer. So from, from the beginning of COVID until this summer, I, I didn't travel to Korea, but uh, uh, this summer I I did take three trips there. And so so I spent my time in, in Korea. Um, and then while I was there, I spent it on the DMZ. Uh, in an infantry unit. We patrolled the DMZ in the winters and uh, trained in the summers and spring and fall. Uh, and it was a great, great mission. And of course, it was my first exposure and education. Um, but at the end of, of the three years I was there, I went to special forces training, uh, became a special forces officer at Green Beret. Uh, and then I was assigned to first special forces group, which the battalion I was in was responsible for Korea. So from 1989 to 94, I did every exercise in Korea. Ulchi Focus Lens, now called Ochi Freedom Shield, uh, full eagle team spirit. Did the last team spirit in '93, um, and uh, and then I uh, and so I spent uh, all those years at, at Fort Lewis, but at least half the year in Korea. Uh, then I went. I was selected, fortunately, to go to the Command General Staff College, our um, you know major level uh, school uh, at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, and I I attended that, and then I stayed on for a second year of uh, the School of Advanced Military Studies, uh, which uh, um, is the the equivalent to uh, to SAS, the School of Advanced Air Power Studies at 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 Maxwell Air Force Base, my namesake, that second lieutenant who crashed in training. <laughs> I actually, while I was in SAMS, I uh, I did go down as an exchange for an exercise. And so I made my first and only trip to Maxwell Air Force Base. I thought I'd be the returning, you know, I'd have some hero family member <laughs> relation. And I, I learned that uh, Second Lieutenant Maxwell died in training by flying this training aircraft into a mountain. And of course, you know, airfields air and uh, air bases are named after, uh, you know, heroes and people who've died. Uh, but of course, when the Army Air Corps was just starting out, you know, back then they didn't have that many. And so uh, that's how Maxwell. Field and then Maxwell Air Force Base got named, and I wasn't a, I had no lineage back to some great airman that was uh, <laughs> that was a a hero. So, but anyway, so I I had that experience with uh, Sam's. But while I was there, and and this is something for for um, all of your officers out there, um, I did I did two master's degrees at Leavenworth. Once CGSC, one in the School of Advanced Mer- uh, Advanced Military Studies but i wrote my second monograph on the catastrophic collapse of north korea and if you're people who might remember back at the time you know korea was in the arduous march the great famine of 94 to 96 we had the nuclear agreement in 94 and that agreement was really predicated on the assumption that we wouldn't have to build the two light water nuclear power plants or continue to give 500,000 tons of heavy fuel oil to north korea because north korea would collapse and so i wrote a monograph about what that would look like and the implications for the U.S. military. And then they sent me back to Korea. And so I I went back <laughs> to Korea as a planner, uh, this time on the theater staff at the ROC-U.S. Uh, Combined Forces Command, uh, the United Nations Command, U.S. Forces Korea. And I became a planner. And when I got there, uh, Secretary of Defense Cohen had just tasked uh, the command to plan for the collapse of North Korea. And so I just written this monograph. and my good friend robert collins uh, who was a retired uh, intelligence uh, uh officer in 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 the army and who was now a uh, senior strategist at cfc we got the mission to write the uh, the first concept plan 5029 for uh, north korean instability and regime collapse and i i mention this because you know whenever anybody goes to school you ought to do your research write your papers about current events or future events. And with the idea that you could put your work, uh, you know, your theoretical and academic work into, um, uh, you know, and put it to use in your next job. And uh, and so I was able to do that. And I actually spent four more years in Korea at the time, uh, both in at the theater staff, and then as the J-5 of the Special Operations Command in Korea. Um, and then I went off to, uh, to Okinawa to command the 1st Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group. And, and, um, and so I lived at Kadena Air Force Base, which is a great treat for any soldier to live on an Air Force base. Uh, <laughs> we were treated very well in uh, a life of luxury uh, compared to being on an Army base. Uh, and then, um, and of course, while I was there, 9-11 happened. Um, and I was commanding the battalion, and we went to the Philippines uh, to advise and assist the Philippines in their uh, defense Against Terrorists and Insurgents, Al-Qaeda-linked uh, terrorists, the Abu Sayyaf group and Jema Islamaya. And um, and so I did that and then returned back to the United States. I did a year in the personnel uh, as the chief of special forces officer assignments. And then I went to the National War College. And while I was there, I did a research fellowship for a year and uh, at the National War College. And I wrote a long-term strategy for the Korean Peninsula beyond the nuclear crisis. And so that was in 2004. And then they sent me back to Korea. And uh, (laughs) and so I I went back to Korea again. And uh, I was there from 2004 to 2006. Uh, Then I was selected to command the Joint Special Operations Task Force in the Philippines. So I went back to the Philippines. Uh, And then from there, uh, my career was pretty much uh, ending. I went back to Fort Bragg to be the G3, the operations officer uh, for the Army Special Operations Command and then i was given the first time i i was ever given something that i specifically asked for uh for my retirement assignment i went to the national war college to be a military instructor at the national war college uh and then i retired from there in 2011 so that's kind of the the broad brush of my uh, my career uh but you know if, if you people who are listening i think you can see my academic work uh you know tied to my uh, you know, practical work. And I continue to work on Korea and broader Asia issues. Uh, so I left, uh, I left uh, Germany in 1985. And that was the last time I was in Europe. Uh, I will actually go make my first trip back to Europe at the end of this month. I'm going to go to Poland to speak on unconventional warfare at the NATO Soft Medical Conference. And then I will go from there to from Warsaw to Bahrain, and then to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, and uh, direct flight from Bahrain to Clark. And I'm gonna speak at a conference on Korea in at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Uh, so <laughs> uh, interestingly, a lot of countries in Asia are concerned with the Korea situation. Uh, so I'll be uh, interacting with uh, uh, a strong international community there, and I'll be talking about a free and unified Korea. Uh, which is something I I work on, um, uh, spend a lot of my time on. So, so that's kind of uh, things in an over over the
0: overview for you. Absolutely phenomenal career. Um, that is uh, that that's really really cool. Um, <laughs> you are, of course, a leading expert on the Korean Peninsula, um, and in order to, to truly understand Korea then you must fundamentally understand China and the rest of uh, Indopaycom and all of the players uh, that are, you know, within the space, right? The allies, the adversaries, um, you know, not just. And, and, and that's another thing uh, that I think uh, individuals um, who, study might, uh, who study the topic might be biased towards the, the military lever of power and 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 don't spend enough time on the diplomatic, or or information or economic uh, considerations uh, as well. Um, so you know, after following your work for for a while now, um, I, I've really enjoyed seeing your your work on Korea, uh, and 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 now having full context, you know, straight straight from you as understanding all you know all of the time you've spent there. I think it's. Um, I, I'm just uh, maybe I'm starstruck right now. I think it's really, really cool what you've done. Um, so to to tie it back here to to China, you know, we we talk a lot uh, at the strategic level about China as the pacing threat. But as as you well know, there are um, that are there are other actors in the region uh, that can spark uh Instability in that threat landscape in Indo-Pacom. Um, do you want to talk about the um, the the spectrum of of threats in the region?
1: Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific, um, and and for you know what I think is really fascinating, you know, having been to you know, a number of countries, um, you know, Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, you know, Singapore. Uh, Indonesia, Australia, um, and uh, Sri Lanka, Uh, never got over to India, but, uh, but, you know, PACOM or or the Indo-Pacific is ruled by the tyranny of distance. Uh, And I think that's, you know, there's, there's two laws of physics we can never overcome. Uh, That's the law, the laws of physics of time and distance. And that's really the challenge that, that we have. And especially for all of you, Experts and practitioners of logistics, you know, supplying what we, uh, you know, our military forces. And, and we have real challenges with, of course, basing, uh, you know, in a base, you know, what, what is China called base, a U.S. military base, a target, you know. So, you know, we have real challenges with that. And so so the, the Indo-PACOM is a huge, it's the largest combatant command we have, and it's spread over a tremendous amount of distance, mostly water. Uh, but, uh, but you know, a lot of land and a lot of people as well. Um, I think, first of all, though, I think, you know, you're right. China is the pacing item. You know, that's what the secdef calls it. I think, uh, you know, the National Security Strategy, National Defense Strategy really highlight uh, China. My thesis on China is, is simply this. Let me just state this, because China, I think, seeks to export its authoritarian political system around the world uh, in order to dominate regions co-opt or coerce international organizations, starting with the UN, and then create economic conditions that are favorable to China alone and displace democratic institutions. That's my thesis on China. And that's really derived. I mean, I've taken that from a lot of uh, different scholars and, and analysts and practitioners, uh, but I've tried to sum it up in a in what is useful for me anyways to think about the problem. And so, so China is the 600 pound gorilla. And, of course, as we look at China and what it's been doing, you know, after it's, you know, it's uh, trying to overcome the hundred years of humiliation, uh, you know, where it was treated badly by Western powers. Um, and then, um, you know, it's, its rise after the Civil War, its victory in 49, uh, eventually becoming a member of the UN Security Council, displacing Taiwan, the relations, you know, its unification issue Uh, Uh, between uh, uh, the PRC and Taiwan. I've done a lot of track two events with South Korea and China and the US looking at contingencies on the peninsula. And it's amazing that Chinese scholars and generals retired will will often say that uh, we don't want a contingency on Korea in Korea to be an excuse for South Korea to unify the peninsula. But then they say that uh, they understand their Korean friend's perspective because. China wants unification, too. And it's almost like they're giving us a message, the quid pro quo. You can reunify Korea, but we're going to reunify China. And uh, and I think that's, you know, say that with some, you know, some level of, uh, of levity there. But uh, um, I think that that really is the case. I mean, they want Chinese unification uh, and they want to dominate Taiwan. Um, and uh, and I think that's that's certainly, I think, their long-term objective. Although, I I really think, uh, in my heart of hearts, that they're smart enough to know that they don't want to take it by force. I mean, it's it's like a it's like a prize, and you know, you don't want to, you know, if you recall our history, when we would try to save a village in Vietnam, you know, we'd say we have to burn the village to save it. Well, I don't think China really wants to burn Taiwan or destroy it to to have it. I mean, it's it's a prize itself, and uh, and so I think that they are more bent on. Subverting Taiwan to create a political uh, solution uh, that is favorable to China and, and unification, I think that China vastly miscalculated though in two thousand and nineteen and what it did in Hong Kong I think really was a wake-up call for Taiwan and you know how it uh, it cracked down on uh, on dissent in Taiwan and I think it really exposed what most of us have always believed that the one country, two systems was really just a, uh, a facade, and that uh, China was really paying lip service to that. And I think they showed their true colors, which of course we saw the election in 2019 in in, uh, in Taiwan, and we saw Taiwan start to really crack down on Chinese media companies, you know, and and Chinese influence in in Taiwan, uh, and and now we of course see, you know, the rearming of of Taiwan. Uh, you know, militarily, uh, and uh, in developing capabilities uh, to try to defend itself. Uh, And that's, you know, that's a whole other problem. I worry, though, that China, um, and, you know, I'll I'll talk about some things to read here, but China, uh, its intent is to subvert Taiwan. But for us, I worry that they want to give us the threat that we want to build our military for. You know we talk about A2AD, you know anti-access area denial, and in our, uh, you know we're we're building capabilities to be able to penetrate those areas to defend our bases, long-range precision strike, you know carrier battle groups, bombers, everything which are absolutely necessary for us to deter war and to be able to fight and win. But I wonder if they want us to build a military for that while they are conducting malign activities throughout the, the region and around the world uh, to subvert countries, to extend its influence and, and to follow the Sun Tzu dictum, which is, of course, to win without fighting. Uh, and, um, you know, and so of course, you know, the first, I think everybody should read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Um, and um, you should also read Clausewitz, On War. I, I wrote a paper a long time ago that said any complex military problem can be solved by reading Sun Tzu and Clausewitz. You won't find the answers in those books, but the intellectual engagement with those books will help you discover answers to complex political military problems. Uh, So I I always commend that. But the book that everybody needs to read um, and and really follow, I think, to understand China is Unrestricted Warfare. Uh, The two PLA Air Force colonels in 1999 wrote this book uh, called Unrestricted Warfare. And basically, it was an analysis of the advanced military capabilities of a superpower, the United States, and how a lesser power goes about mitigating those capabilities and ultimately defeating them using unrestricted warfare, which is uh, all of its means uh, focused against the entire uh, uh, the entire spectrum of the enemy threat, uh, not only military but economic, financial, cultural, uh, and, and the like. There and. I think that unrestricted warfare is uh, really provides a playbook. Um, I recall when uh, when I got my letter after I retired from OPM, my wife and I got a letter that our personal information had been compromised by the big hack of OPM, and all of our security clearances were you know were were compromised. And I went back and looked at at uh, unrestricted warfare, and sure enough, in 1999, they were writing about a lot of cyber activities. That you know, I wasn't thinking about in the 1990s. You know, we just started using you know the internet and email and and things like that. Yet they they recognize the importance of using cyber capabilities, uh, and that's something that each and every one of us, whether we're civilian or you're active duty, we've got to be very concerned uh, with protecting the network. You know, and I think as everybody knows, we developed the internet. And, and focused on convenience, ease of use, you know, now we use it for everything. We didn't develop the internet focused on security uh and 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 we look at those security protocols. I mean, I'm sure everybody who listens to this will will talk about in bad mouth uh, the security managers and the services who make us you know in, in institute these security practices or go through you know how to prevent phishing and you know and all the the hacking things and everything. But that's because we didn't develop the internet with with proper security protocols, and so we're really, you know, adding on now. and And it's up to each of us uh, to uh, to really uh, protect the network. and And you can do all the things with software and and hardware that you want. The internet is most vulnerable because of the human aspect. You know, because we're the ones that'll click on you know a a link in an email because we think we're going to win the lottery or something. <laughs> and uh, you know, so we've got to have the personal discipline to do that. And and China is exploiting that, as is North Korea, as is Russia, as is Iran, uh, and and any adversary out there. Uh, cyberspace, the cyber domain, is is a place where we have to operate effectively, comfortably, but with a high level of discipline, personal discipline. And I think we, you know, that's something that uh, again we we laugh at, and you know, we badmouth the security uh, uh, people and and. And I think, frankly, and, you know, those who might be listening, we do tend to uh, try to implement draconian security measures, you know, because we got to balance security with effectiveness. And, and that takes a real art. And so we can't turn the network over to technicians who will harden th- things so bad that we can't, you know, we can't operate effectively, but we can't turn it loose in the wild because we'll be vulnerable. So it takes real leadership and 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 leaders who can bridge the gap between the technical and the human aspect and come up with the right policies and and practices there. Uh, but back to unrestricted warfare. You know that's one aspect cyber but financial markets, uh electronic grids and, and things like that and of course you know that's going to affect us everywhere. Uh whether we're we're in bases throughout the Indo-Pacific uh you know or in the homeland and our families at home. Um you know this is something that a bet we don't think a lot about you know you might be a deployed airman out there in the front line and your family may be affected you know by a cyber attack back home in in, in the states so you know what are you doing to harden and, and to, to provide resilience to your family you know we we as americans you know we become so convenient i would tell my students at georgetown that you know if there's a cyber attack in washington i mean it would create havoc you know if we had no electricity for a week in washington we are not prepared to be self-sufficient. We depend on grocery stores, on, on gasoline, on on uh, cell phones and credit cards and, and all of that. We don't, you know, we don't grow our own food. We don't go out and you know, we don't even go to markets, you know, to the farmer's markets anymore, uh, you know, and, and really pick up our food every day. Uh, you know, we store it. We have, you know, refrigeration. All of those things are for convenience. And so while you're a frontline airman out there, what's your family doing back home when, when the electricity goes out for a week? you know have you prepared for that so I think that's something you know that we need to think about and you know of course that's hard and time consuming and you know and of course your family you know why am i preparing you know for this but um you got to think about that and uh, it could be because we don't want our families to be suffering while we're out doing our job you know that really takes a uh, takes away from doing that and the second thing about your ir- about ir- um, unrestricted warfare I think is is really important I think that is really a playbook. And the techniques, tactics, techniques, and procedures that are in there are being exploited by more than China. And I think everybody reads that, that book. So everybody should read it. But the reason I think that it's so important is when I was a student at the National War College in 2003 and 2004, the Chinese Minister of Defense came to, came to Washington and gave a talk to uh, the U.S. and international officers at, at the War College. And I, I'm usually not one to ask questions in, in the large groups, you know, of distinguished speakers. You know, we've had distinguished speakers, everybody goes to school and they, you know, the generals and, you know, political leaders will come in and talk and, you know, give a, give a speech and, you know, international officers and, and uh, dignitaries will come in and give a speech. And so nobody really wants to get up and and ask questions, but I, I got up the courage to ask the, the Chinese minister of defense uh, this question. And I said, and you know, I said, sir, I said, you know, the two colonels in 1999 who wrote this book, on Unrestricted Warfare, you know, it was very prescient. I mean, it, it basically telegraphed, uh, you know, our, you know, the clash of civilizations, you know, 9-11, you know, those types of, of, of attacks and, and uh, the vulnerabilities that we had. I said it was very prescient. And what I would like to know is, has China used that book as a foundation for developing operational concepts and strategy and developing its military doctrine? And he looked at me and he walked off the stage and consulted with his handlers. And, you know, they were, they were talking and, uh, and he walked back up on stage and he looked me right in the eye and he said, that book has been debunked and don't believe everything you read. And that was the end of it. And I, you know, when he said that, I said, well, he doth protest too much. And you know, I said, <laughs> I think he's telling us that they really do use it. You know I mean? I think that, uh, I, I think it really scared them that, uh, you know that I, I not that I scared them, but I mean, I think the idea uh, that uh, we would be thinking that they're using that, um you know, it it struck a nerve. and uh, and so I, I tell that story because I think we should all pay attention to that book and and understand it uh, and and understand how that may affect us. And I think at whatever level you are, from NCO to officer, uh, that you should have a good familiarity with with what they're doing because they're going to apply and, and of course it's unrestricted warfare it's asymmetric it's irregular it's unconventional it's political it's economic you know it's financial it's cultural uh it, it really has everything in it and uh, and so we need to be familiar with that and so i commend everybody uh, to to gain familiarity with that and and look at it and it, it also can be useful for developing defenses for training programs for you know how to counter things that we don't typically expect and we don't actually train for um, in uh, you know in our our conventional type training uh, uh, areas there so um, so that's China now of course China is operating uh, throughout the world the One Belt One Road which they didn't like that name O-B-O-R-O-B-E-R. Uh they changed the Belt and Road Initiative you know trying to to have a a good public relations sense, sense with with it but what One Belt One Road is is really about debt trap diplomacy. It's really about China using its resources to be able to to influence countries uh, and ultimately uh, to put countries in a position where China can benefit and that country is weakened. The recent uh, acquisition of the port in Sri Lanka is a great example of that. You know, they provided uh, money to to uh, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka couldn't pay it back, and so China is saying, "Well, you know, if you can't pay up, I'm going to take control of this." And we see around the world where China is doing that in Africa, in Latin America, um, and which which really gives another uh, another thing. We we organize our national security apparatus around regions, um, and so we have indo and UCOM and SouthCOM and CENTCOM, uh, you know, UCOM and, and NorthCOM. You know, okay, so we have all these geographic regions, and and we expect those in indo pacom to be familiar with Asia and, and the Asian countries. But what happens when China is operating in Africa? We've got our Africom experts there. How how well versed are they in China's uh, strategy and, and operation? How many how many people do we send to Africa to who can speak Chinese? You know, I mean that's that's not you know I asked that I've asked that at many uh, conferences, and and of course uh, you know language is hard. Language is really hard, and to invest in in the African languages, you know Swahili and things like that, or try to use French when, you know, the old colonial, uh, you know, French language there. I mean, it's, you know, developing that is, is hard enough. And then to think you want to have Chinese because the Chinese are operating, you know, in Africa or in Latin America, that's really hard to do. Uh, and so, um, and this is something that, you know, all of us have to struggle with, because in addition to our our military specialties, our military training, maintaining proficiency, you know, if you have to maintain or develop a proficiency in language and culture and, and all of that, it, it, it's hard. It's time consuming. Um, and of course, we we impose so many training requirements, you know, to maintain our qualifications and certifications, which I don't dispute at all, especially in your work you know, pilots and crews, you know, you've got to be able to, I mean, every flight is a life and death situation. And so all of that training, I am not uh, at all, uh, um, you know, trying to uh, discount in any way. But in, in some ways, we have too many training requirements. And, you know, we we mandate a lot of things, which really prevents people from the the best forms of education, which is self-learning, and, and knowledge, and this is why you know I commend you for for doing this kind of a podcast because I think this can help contribute to learning in different ways. Uh, not that I'm uh, you know, I'm going to impart any any education or wisdom here, but you know these types of things are really good that you make available you know to the force uh, to try to learn in different ways. I mean, people can drive drive to work and listen to a podcast, and and uh, and you know they can they can multitask, but you know especially those and this is. The one thing that that I I would urge for every military person, every civilian, every national security practitioner, professional is you got to be a lifelong learner. You know, you want to learn, you want to you want to gain new knowledge, gain new understanding, uh, and be able to apply that to your work. And uh, and as I said, I think every one of us, regardless of your rank, I mean, I am really from the the junior airman and private, you know, up to the general, we got to be familiar with uh, with the enemy. You know, and China is the you know, is the pacing item. It's the 600 pound gorilla. And so we got to understand China. Um, but of course, Indo-PACOM we have five treaty allies, uh, of course, starting with Korea, Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, and Australia. Uh, and those are our five, five treaty allies. And, and they're all affected by, by China, every single one of them. And they have different, you know, we have territorial disputes uh, between China and the Philippines, between China and Japan, uh, you know we have territorial disputes between Korea and Japan, and also between Japan and Russia, uh, the Kuril Islands up in the north. So you have all these territorial disputes, uh, which we all need to be familiar with, uh, and how that impacts our allies. Uh, and you know especially the friction between China and Japan. I mean uh, Japan and Korea is you know our two allies there, which should be in lockstep. You know have the you know have common enemy, uh, common threats, but yet you know they. The historical issues there really, really impact them. That's something we have to be aware of. And, uh, um, you know, something I try to emphasize is that, um, you know, for China, for Japan and South Korea, they've got to be able to put national security and national prosperity first and try to manage those historical issues. And, of course, we have tried to keep, you know, in between Korea and Japan, uh, they have a dispute over the islands called Tokto. The Koreans call it Tokto the japanese call it takashima and we have tried to remain neutral so we call it Leon court rocks and uh, <laughs> and you know which really doesn't doesn't do a lot of good uh, because it in some ways it kind of upsets both uh, korea and japan that we don't uh, um you know even though international it, it looks like you know and this is the the irony of korea and japan japan would go to the un and to the international count uh, tribunal and for a decision on who it belongs to and if you look at the long history, you can look in our our uh, our uh, um, um, the um, uh, national archives, and uh, you know what's the Library of Congress, and you can find the historical and the maps going back decades, hundreds of years, centuries back. And it looks like it it belongs to Korea when you really look at it. Uh, and Japan would would go for a a, a ruling. Uh, but the Koreans won't because the Koreans don't want to give the appearance that it's in any kind of question, whereas Japan would go for a ruling. And if there was a ruling and it went to Korea, they would say, OK, we tried, you know, it's international ruling, you know, they would save face and then it would the question will be solved. But the Koreans will not acquiesce on that, you know, and, and uh, to try because, you know, one, there's a chance it might they might not win. But their position is there's no reason to since it already belongs to them. And so these are the kind of issues that we have to be aware of and we have to understand, uh, despite the fact that if you have experience working with Koreans and Japanese, the two militaries actually work quite well together. You know, there are are Korean officers in Yakuza, Japan right now, tracking, you know, uh, North Korean uh, uh, sanctions evasion activities. We've got allies there, Korea, Japan, um, you know, Canada, Australia, the UK, Germany. Uh, you know, and others that are that are in that combined uh, naval operations center there. So they work together on their own, but these historical issues really, uh, really cause some problems. So I, I give you that kind of thumbnail. The other thing to, to look at too, uh, if we were looking at a map, uh, we do have to put ourselves in China's position, and and of course, as I said, they want to overcome the hundred years of humiliation. But when you look at things geographically, uh, you can just see. Uh, from their perspective, it looks like we're trying to surround them. You know, we have Korea in the Northeast, Japan, the Philippines, of course, Taiwan is nominally, uh, you know, an ally, not really, but, you know, de facto. Uh, And then we have relations with Indonesia, Malaysia, now Vietnam, and of course, ally with with Thailand and then Australia to the south. You know, pretty good relations sometimes with India. You know, we now have the Quad, which is, uh, you know, another security arrangement uh, uh, that we've been developing and it looks like we're surrounding china and we're taking away its access and uh, you know they have have uh, i think part of their one belt one road is really to to make sure that they always have access to the global commons and and you know trade routes and things like that i don't believe that we're really trying to surround them or cut them off uh, but you know from their perspective i think we have to recognize that uh, they could look at it that way so we have to understand that Um, you know, understand their perspective. The last thing I did in the Army, I took 15 students to China uh, from the National War College for two weeks. We went to Beijing, Qingdao, Kunming, uh, where the the Flying Tigers were based, um, you know, for the Air Force there, the great history there. Uh, And then Hong Kong on the way out. Um, And and they were, you know, it's funny, we went to this tank brigade northwest of Beijing and an Army general uh, briefed our Navy commandant uh, from the War College, and he said, "You know, this is where we're located. This is our training area. Uh, this is our area of responsibility. Uh, our biggest claim to success is we march in every every military day parade every year in in Beijing. And then this is the first island chain, and the second island chain. And I'm thinking, you know, what tank brigade commander at Fort Hood, Texas, would be briefing maritime boundaries?" But they're important to China, you know, and the in the first island chain and second island chain, uh, that's you know that's how they they look at things, and so we've got to understand uh, those uh, um, you know their their perspective because we've got to be able to deal with that, uh, counter it maybe direct countering or indirectly, you know, and how to how to how to use their their fears to uh, um, uh, to our advantage, and that's what we, one of the things we have to figure out strategically, uh, because as, as I said. You know, we want to avoid direct confrontation. Obviously, we don't want a war. Uh, all of the strategic assets, you know, anybody who, you know, if anybody's sitting in a missile silo out there or, you know, on on an airstrip at Barksdale on uh, you know, a nuclear alert there, you know, we certainly don't want to see any of you guys employed in, in any kind of
0: confrontation. Yeah, it's funny I say Barksdale. That was my, my last duty station before uh, coming to the Pentagon. Well, I was an aircraft maintainer there um, to tie it back to some of the initial things that you were talking about with unrestricted warfare. Um, it's so short of a read that there's no excuse not to read it. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, you know I, I got it on the, you know, on the shelf behind me, uh, you know, same thing with, um, uh, you know, Sun Tzu and, and Clausewitz, uh, right. I think the art of war and on war two critical reads you know to understand um but then i like to to culminate that with uh boyd and and the work that he put together essentially you know molding the two together um i'm a i'm a huge john boyd fan and i and i and i think he is uh severely underappreciated uh by airmen, even though he was an airman right Uh, Yeah, the
1: Marines loved him. The Marines have loved him. And, you know, the OODA loop and, uh, you know, observe, orient, design and uh, act. I mean, I think there's a lot of merit to that. I think it it was he was he was really an interesting guy. Um, But let me let me just uh, on on Clausewitz and Sun Tzu. um, Clausewitz is really hard to read. It's really it's, you know, the dialectic. It's really, uh, you know, you you know, it's very, very difficult to read uh, because it's translated from the German. Um, you know Sun Tzu seems very easy to read, thirteen chapters. Uh, but you know actually, um, Clausewitz and Sun Tzu have a lot together. Clausewitz was figuring out his theory of war and was taking us through all of his analysis. Sun Tzu gave us the answer at the end. You know his thirteen chapters of, of pithy little statements, but they're actually very deep. Uh, but he doesn't take you through all the analysis. Michael Handel, who's now he's a, passed away, he's a professor at the Naval War College. He wrote a Book called Masters of War, and rather than reading uh, Clausewitz, indeed, you know, I recommend reading his book because he commit he compares Clausewitz and Sun Tzu, and in his later edition, Germany as well. Uh, but his his first book was just Clausewitz and, and Sun Tzu, and he shows the similarities that they have between them. A lot of people say they're vastly different, uh, but there's actually more similarities uh, than than there are differences, and Michael Handel does a great job, and he's got some great charts and graphics in there. So, you know, I would for people who are interested but are intimidated by the uh, the dialectic of and the, and the dense German of uh, of on war. Um, I, I commend that too. And I I would often at Georgetown, uh, especially with international officers who would have to come in and and the first courses you take in the security studies program are all the great theorists, and I would always tell them to to read that book. Uh, in conjunction with it, and it, it really, I think it really helps out. So I, I commend that to those who want to, want to study that and uh, and learn that. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, it could be used, useful because, as I said, I think reading those two books can really contribute to your critical thinking because you've got to really engage, and uh, and by engaging with those, you will
0: find uh, solutions to complex political military problems. Mm-hmm. All right. That is one book I do not have on my bookshelf on on either one in this room. So <laughs> I will add that to my cart as as soon as we are yeah. uh, you know done done having our conversation. Uh, I, I think also when you when you bring up you know the cyber threat, and everyone, everyone is a player in that space. Um you know yes. people think it's silly when when the security manager says, "Hey, change your password." Frequently, like every month, or even you know, every two weeks, um, you know, I I've been you know at Georgetown, I'm actually taking a course on cyber threat intelligence, and I find I'm just it's so fascinating hearing about uh, how these threat actors infiltrate networks and and sit there for years, and the Chinese specifically that the Chinese are known in their espionage operations to to be you know engage in reconnaissance for years their patience is absolutely incredible and then when you look at um the the cyber breaches between china and taiwan um where they've um uh, you know extracted so much information on on the financial institutions of, of taiwan and and then people sit there and they scratch their heads and they think well you know w- what can this be used for well this can be you know used as either Blackmail. This can be used as, you know, hey, are they scoping out the, um, you know, the environment for, you know, a, a future engagement? How, how are they going to leverage the gray zone here? Um, and that's just one, you know, small example for the the plethora of operations that they've done. Uh, you know, when we're talking about uh, intellectual intellectual property theft or you know IP theft, and and we look at um, the compromise of other assets. You know, across the um, you know the spectrum of uh, you know even you know private industry, uh, and then we you know you also mentioned BRI and uh, their their dealings in Africa, their dealings in South America. Uh, you know, you even look at Central America, uh, in in um, you know even cr- creeping up as far as Costa Rica, uh, military installations that uh, that have started to to pop up uh, to support the space domain. Uh, I think it's. uh, I I think that is everything that we need to you know continue to to keep in context and also to tie in. Now to just take you know take a little uh, you know moment here for you know for North Korea and and you know and tying in the cyber domain, the um, you know look at their cyber capabilities and look at just the Sony Pictures hack, right? A, A nation state, which was not scared to seek uh, a, a international level decision to destroy, right. Uh, you know, to, um, you know, to go out and, 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 and the threat that, that they pose. Um, and, and I think it's, you know, get, I know, you know, you are absolutely an expert in you know, you know, with, with the Korean peninsula, I think it's something that we need to appreciate more and respect more and understand, uh, in conjunction with, um, the, the pacing threat in China.
1: Yeah, it, cyber, of course. Yeah, North Korea—that's the all-purpose sword, which I, I think in many ways is is much more valuable than the nuclear. You know, you can use the nuclear weapons once, but the cyber you can keep doing. It. And and you you know you look at the the crypto hacks that have been discovered. You know, they're using it to gain hard currency. At the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, we we call that cyber-enabled economic warfare, and um, and and North Korea is doing it uh, it very well. Just but. To tie things back to two things, to personal, um, it it all goes back to the human element uh, in this. So (laughs) North Korea uh, penetrated uh, the Chilean banking system in Chile. And they did it by posing as businessmen, contacting young Chilean bankers, you know, 20-somethings, through LinkedIn, Skyping with them, having an interview, and, you know, that they're looking for jobs and stuff, and then sending them an email with an application. To fill out for a job, prospective job, and of course they click on them on their work computer, and bingo, they're in the in the server in the system for the Chilean banking system, and they use that to penetrate uh, and and steal you know hundreds of thousands of dollars from the ATM system in Chile. But I say that because you know China, uh, North Korea is not just a backwards country. I mean they develop sophisticated capabilities, but they're penetrating through humans, you know, through people who are doing things. You know, thinking, oh, I'm looking for a job. I'm, you know, so that fishing, you know, and and that that spoofing there is, uh, you know, and, and it play. It's the human engineering piece that is, uh, um, uh, that is really important. The other thing I, I think about uh, your guys out in Fairchild Air Force Base uh, uh, conducting survival training. And I went through, you know, Special Forces Seer School, and which we have at Fort Bragg, but Fairchild teaches the same things out there. And you know, we go through the resistance training laboratory. And and learn how to resist interrogation, um, but think about this in the cyber world. You know, what if you're sitting there, and and uh, rather than you know they're beating you with rubber hoses and things, that they just pull up the computer, and you know here's your family back at you know at uh, McCord Air Force Base or at uh, uh, you know anywhere in the world, and you're a prisoner there, and they pull up all your family's accounts, and they say we're going to zero out your bank account, we're going to do this, your family's going to be destitute, you know, and you know, and so what do you do then? You know, and, and of course, they know culturally, you know, that we're going to want to protect our family. So that that puts everything at risk. And uh, and so, you know, the question, how do you deal with that? Well, you've got to develop resilience, you know, before you deploy, you know, how can you take care of your family? And of course, you know, something like that happens, their families got to be able to, to get help uh, from, you know, from the military, from the government. Uh, but we've got to help. Develop that that defense for our family and that resilience. You know, can they handle that kind of uh, cyber attack that's going to happen to them? That could happen in terms of uh, you know if you're ever captured and and under duress. Uh, so all these things, you know, I mean, we we talk about the strategic level, you know, hacking into major communication systems, but each of us individual are are vulnerable to the, those capabilities. And so we really need to to think think our way through that. Um, you know, and how do we develop? Uh, you know, at the at, at every level of every rank, uh, from airman to general, uh, and every civilian uh, who is vulnerable, you know, high risk, uh, their families could be at risk as well. And so, you know, it's a brave new world out there that we've got to be able to operate in.
0: Mm-hmm. So now, to you know, talk about our allies in the region. What would you say are the key capabilities um, that we should understand and appreciate um, of our allies and partners in indo Well,
1: I think that uh, our, our major allies—Korea, um, uh, Japan, and Australia—I think have you know the most advanced military capabilities uh, in the region. Uh, particularly, uh, you know, from perspective of, of all of you, I think. South Korea and Japan have pretty, uh, pretty good air power capabilities. You know, obviously not not on our level, but uh, but we have. You know, they they can really contribute to the air fight, naval as well. Japan, in particular, has has a, uh, a very advanced naval capability. South Korea uh, less so, but they're developing. They have Aegis-equipped destroyers. You know, which I think is key for missile defense. I think that's one thing. Missile defense, and we have to keep pressing. Uh, for integrated missile defense, uh, our missile defense capabilities, you know, are not integrated with our allies um, as well as they could be. And certainly, Japan, South Korea, and the United States having an integrated missile defense system and capability would be a great defense against North Korea, but China as well. And again, I'm I'm really out of my area on this, but you know, logically, um, you know, we have different geographic locations different capabilities you've got radar to detect launch, you know intelligence to detect activity before launch, left of launch. you know then you have you detect preparations, then you have radars that can detect launch and, and the telemetry there and of course Japan has a different view than South Korea uh, and their systems might pick up something and then of course queuing systems and then uh, targeting uh, missiles in, in flight to destroy them. If you're integrated, then you can use the right system to destroy the uh, uh, the uh, the missile and the threat and it may be detected by South Korea and destroyed by Japan or the u s uh you know by a ship at sea or by a, a, a land-based uh, system uh, but if it's integrated, you have a greater chance to um uh, to defend against the the threat and of course, I get comments from my Korean friends you know who will say, well, why should we worry about defending Japan? Why should our assets be used to defend Japan? And my response is because their assets are going to be used to defend South Korea, and you know, and, and an integrated missile defense, and that should be something all of our our military personnel. You know, if you're a uh, um, you know uh, an attaché, or uh, if you're you know working in an, in the international, you know, in a coalition environment, uh, that you really want to be. You know, talking to your counterparts, just keep planting those seeds. Integrated missile defense. I think that's something that, that we really need to need to focus on. Um, you know, other countries like Philippines and and Thailand. You know, they don't have as advanced military capabilities, but we continue to conduct interoperability uh, exercises: Cobra Gold, uh, Keen Sword, uh, you know, Tandem Thrust in Australia. Uh, these exercises are really how we understand our allies' capability and how we develop uh, uh, interoperability. Uh, and, you know, we have to be careful that we can't create other militaries in our image, probably our biggest failing in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, however, many countries do want to develop the capabilities like us. A problem that we have, though, is that US military capabilities are expensive. And uh, and so, um, you know, it's good for us that Korea and Japan are buying F 35s, you know, in Australia. You know, that is really good for us because. You know, that lowers the cost, also keeps our production lines open, uh, and so you know there are certain systems that we really want our allies to uh, to develop, and F thirty uh, five I think is is one of those, uh, and so um, we we want to encourage them to do that, but you know the F thirty five is not appropriate for Thailand or the Philippines, uh, you know as much as they might want them, you know that, uh, and so we have to be judicious in how we how we uh, how we look at that. Um, and then, of course, other countries that are not allies—Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Singapore—you um, know the, these these countries are, you know, sometimes friends. Sometimes there's friction. Uh, you know, we do work together with them, uh, and of course, uh, uh, but you know, we don't have uh, formal alliances with them. But we need to maintain good relations uh, with them and and to share, uh, you know, information as appropriate, and and to conduct uh, combined training. Uh, When we can, I think that's really a key thing for for you know whether it's it's operational um, uh, operational employment of our combat systems or if it's basing and logistics support and you know that's another thing that's really important for our exercises because it allows the opportunity uh, for you know the entire force to exercise you know from from top to bottom you know we tend to focus on combat operations but you you know I'm this audience you know combat operations aren't going to take place unless we have the the foundation of logistics to support them you know and in the entire spectrum you know, you know fueling rearming maintaining uh, and transportation uh, and so uh, which always amazes me i've always been blessed with uh, great logisticians and and I, I it's something i i i admire in how the coordination comes together to be able to get to move people and things and and to operate uh, you know, the, uh, you know, Red Horse and, you know, all those things that I, I see the Air Force brings to the table. I mean, these are important capabilities uh, that, and but we need to exercise to do them. And that's one thing that, um, uh, you know, in, in the last few years from the last administration, particularly in Korea, we thought we could cut back exercises to support diplomacy. And, you know, like I tell my Korean friends, uh, you know, the military, everybody in the military, they're like professional athletes uh, you know, you've got to train, you know, if you're a, a football player, a soccer player, or a golfer, a baseball player, you know, all our, our skills are perishable. And so you've got to train and, uh, and, you know, to maintain that world-class athlete, uh, uh, status there. And so, uh, if we don't train, and of course, you know, sometimes training, you know, is okay. You know, we got to leave home. We're long gone for a long period of time. You know, sometimes we, we feel like, oh, it's good. It's canceled, you know? And, uh, you know, because, don't have to leave leave my family, but you know looking at it practically, we've got to train. We've got to make those deployments uh, and uh, and develop those relationships, that interoperability, but just hone our skills uh, that again are very perishable. If you don't use them, you'll lose them. and so and I think logistically, uh, that's the other thing too is you know you become familiar with areas uh, where you're gonna have to operate and uh, and then go into austere environments, that's really. Uh, you know where we don't have fixed bases or uh, established logistics we don't have pre-positioned stocks um, you know and we might be dependent on on a float stocks uh, um, and, and the like there and a float staging basis but um, you know all those need to be trained because you know we we learn more from making mistakes often and uh, we learn more from from things that uh, things that happen you know and we want to do that in training, not when we need them in the real world. So uh, that's why I think everybody needs to be focused. And when you listen to the pundits and, and, you know, I mean, our political leaders, you know, we obviously civilian control the military. We're going to do what our political leaders tell us to do. Uh, but it's up to us to advise people that uh, that uh, training is necessary and, uh, and it's critical to readiness, which is critical to deterrence, which is critical to national security.
0: I 100% agree, uh, and I think, I think hard training, realistic training, uh, exercises that uh, are unpredictable are are the answer to you know truly being ready for any sort of future contingency. Right? Like too often, and that we, uh, I, I had a chance to sit down with the associate director of logistics, and we talked about this uh, specific topic of. Uh, there are too many exercises where, you know, we we always we always quote win win the war, right? Hey, we you know we start on a Monday, we end on a Friday, we know we're gonna go get a cold beer afterwards and and call it a day, right? But in in today's day and age, and actually I would argue in any day and age that that's not the answer. Um, you know, we need to continue to challenge ourselves and uh, and and continue to. Um, to to fail and to grow, um, but also just to, like from a cultural perspective, uh, I I would argue, and I think others would argue as well, that the Department of Defense uh, doesn't reward failure, despite uh, uh you know despite failure being the the forcing function for for growth at the organizational and personal level, right? Um, and uh, and especially when we look at um, like let's say I mean, I understand, uh, like operations is critically important, right? The pointy the, you know, the pointy end of the spear. Um, but also, when you're looking at logistics and uh, and MC rates, and like, hey, we have a no fail mission, right? I, I mean, granted, everyone's a no fail mission, but we have to get jets in the air. Um, and it's hard to answer why they are not in the air. Uh, that that kind of actually leads into into my next question here. When we look at all of these constraints. Um, you know, across the Pacific Theater, um, you know, we have tens of thousands of square miles of oceans. Um, there's a lack of of infrastructure in, uh, you know, in a, in a lot of these remote places, right? Which is why adaptive basing is so important. Um, you know, when when General Berger, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, states, you know, logistics, you know, is the pacing function of the future fight, and he's also said uh, to the effect, um, we need to make logistics uh driven decisions to instead of intelligence driven decisions uh in, in the future fight um would you agree with that assessment
1: Yeah you know it's yes I I do I mean fundamentally um I do you know but it gets it gets to the thing all of it is important I mean intelligence is important logistics is important operational you know, every aspect is important and it's and it's it's hard to say one is more important than the other um you know that and so and we have to be careful about that. We've got to be able to do it all. And and what's what's the challenge for leaders is is they've got to set the priorities and they've got to balance the resources. I, I think we really don't we, you know, those of us who are out in the field, uh, you know, out in the operational force, we don't really have a good grasp of what happens at the services uh in the Pentagon. And you know, the biggest part of their job is, you know, of course, manning the force, training the force, equipping the force. But setting priorities and, and to be able to, uh, uh, to do those. And, you know, the priorities for logistics, for intelligence, for, uh, you know, for training, uh, they all have to be balanced. And that's really where, where tough decisions are made. And no one really sees those decisions. Uh, you know, they don't, I mean, we'll see when there's failure. Uh, and, and your point about failure is, is important, that obviously we don't want to reward failure. I mean, but we want to learn from failure. And I'm reminded of a story during World War II uh, or prior to World War II, General Marshall, the chief of staff of the Army, uh, then, of course, headed the Army Air Corps as well. uh, But uh, um, some second lieutenant uh, lost some piece of equipment that cost like $100,000, you know, which, of course, today would probably be a million dollars, you know. And, and of course, the general said, OK, so what are you going to do with this lieutenant? And they said, oh, we're going to relieve him. We're, you know, he's going to be fired from his job because he failed, you know, and and he, and he said to him, you know, well, why would you do that? We just spent $100,000 training him never to make that same mistake again. And, <laughs> and I always tell that story because, you know, that is the way to look at it. If you make a mistake in training, you know, chances are you learn more from your mistakes than you do from successes because, you know, your success could have just been luck. You know, but your mistake—you did something wrong—and you learn never to make that mistake again. And so we have to. Uh, I, again, I don't think rewarding rewarding failure is the right thing, but we have to respect failure, and we have to respect and reward the learning from failure. That's really the key: uh, is is learning from that failure. So uh, we want people to take risks and training. You know, prudent risks. You know, we don't want you know losing lives and and injuring uh, uh, the troops, but you know, you take prudent risks, but you take risks that challenge you. And uh, and if, if it doesn't work, you learn from it and you reward the learning from it, uh, not necessarily the failure. Uh, so we want to reward learning from mistakes.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's so interesting how you you bring up uh, General Marshall. Um, I, I look up to him, uh, you know, via history. Right. And, and uh, I'm not sure if you've read uh, The Rise of the GI Army. Uh, but it's a it's a fantastic text on the 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 pre-war uh, United States military, and you know, obviously, you're familiar with the the Tennessee and Louisiana maneuvers, and and yeah. how we encouraged we encouraged units and leaders to fail so we can learn, so we can grow. Um, I, I mentioned in a previous podcast about aerated rated run, uh, runways. I mean, that was invented by, uh, by an E5, by a sergeant who was out there trying to figure out solutions um, to, uh, to be successful, you know, in, in a future fight. And that, you know, and obviously we use those across, you know, the European and, and Pacific theaters, uh, you know, and God knows how many square feet of those runways were, were created, right? Um, but i didn't
1: i didn't read the gi i didn't read that that book but i i remember from the louisiana maneuvers one story that always uh, struck with me uh of course we were trying to figure out maneuvering large scale you know armored forces and what do they what do they depend on fuel and uh, and so you know they couldn't go that far without fuel and um and so one of the you know, enterprising young lieutenant's uh had worked for the railroad before and so uh, he was, you know, worked for the G4, the logistics officer. And and uh, and so he called up the railroad and had to move fuel tankers, you know, to a siding uh, along the way. And the tanks were able to refuel and continue the fight. Nobody thought they could go as far as they did. But he had he had that knowledge from his previous work. And I, I mention this because, um, you know, we tend to talk about developing intelligence, conducting reconnaissance. You know, I think that uh, the logistics forces of the airport have to conduct logistics reconnaissance. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you've got to go over to the Solomon Islands. You've got to go to Guam. You've got to go to all these places throughout Indo-PACOM and you've got to understand the existing logistics infrastructure, the potential infrastructure. And, you know, we can send spies out to do that, you know, say that facetiously, you know, intelligence people to go collect intelligence, but, you know, Intelligence professionals don't have the eye for logistics necessarily. You know they may not be well versed in that. And I think you know this is where training comes in. But this is where continuous deployments, and we need to understand what exists in the austere areas. Um, Elliot Cohen and John Gooch wrote a book called Military Misfortunes, and it it analyzes a number of, of historic, famous military failures. And and they wrote that all military failures are a result of three things: the failure to learn, the failure to adapt, and the failure to anticipate. Now we do a pretty good job learning. We learn our lessons. We adapt. Uh, I think we 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 show that. But anticipation is really hard. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, and so we've got to make investments. You know, we don't know where we're going to fight in the Pacific. Uh, you know, in the Indo-Pacific or Asia-Pacific. So we've got to have a good understanding of what the potential. Areas to operate. You know, when you think back of World War II, and and you look at the the army and the navy, were really capturing bases to do what? They're capturing islands to do what? To base aircraft so we could conduct long range. You know, now today it would be long range precision strike. You know, where are we going to put those missiles? Where are we going to put those aircraft? And so, you know, now that we're in in strategic competition, but it's peacetime, uh, we need to be planning. And when you look back to the interwar years between World War One and World War II, you know the Navy did tremendous planning. To Plan Orange, uh, you know, how to fight in the Pacific. I mean, they really looked hard at at, at that as Japan as the threat, and a lot of that planning uh, really paid off in in World War II. And so, from a logistics aspect, you know, if I were you know able to make a recommendation to the leaders. I would want to get my sergeants, my company grade, field grade officers out there to austere places and just be collecting information, collecting knowledge, collecting data. You know, OK, what are we going to need? You know, what's it going to take to operate out of this runway? And of course, there's a lot of data that's out there available. You can you can go to uh, you know find out on uh, existing air, airspace, you know, air bases and things like that. But what about places where you're going to be operating from? a road, you know, where you're going to, you know, I mean, we, I see the A-10s landing on highways and things like that. Well, we may have to set up austere bases uh, in places. And, uh, um, you know, you probably can't bring a B-1 into, into <laughs> that austere of an environment, but, you know, we, we need to know where we can put them, where we can base them. Uh, and so I think as part of training exercises, part of, of uh, professional development, you really want to be able to have people and, and there's no substitute for personal reconnaissance. You can look up all the kind of data on the internet, but you know some people have to get on the ground and put their eyes on it, walk the terrain, you know, walk the logistics, uh, you know, where are they going to set up you know fuel this far from you know maintenance, from this far from ammo storage and that kind of stuff. Um, and again, you can get a lot of that from satellite imagery and things like that. but um, I, I know that uh, if you put airmen on the ground, uh, you know, they'll be much better equipped to deal with it when it happens. And that's what that's how we have to anticipate where might we need to be uh, to support, you know, X
0: operation. Mm-hmm. And we're pretty inoculated as, you know, as an Air Force to comfort, to easy access to um, the luxuries of civilization, uh, you know, whether that's, you know, at home station or even deployed, right? Uh, But hey, I'm over here uh, as an armchair quarterback, you know, I've never forward deployed before. uh, But I I, I would argue that it's, it's common knowledge that hey, there's a Burger King on, you know, on base, there's a, you know, there's a swimming pool on, you know, at Al Udeed or whatever it may be. Um, So I 100% agree with you that. You know, we need to continue to, you know, to challenge ourselves and adapt ourselves to, like, uh, you know, a future environment of, uh, like, yeah, there's not going to be running water. There there might not even be, you know, transportation on the ground. Uh, there's going to be a lot of proverbial, like, actually, probably sometimes literal heavy lifting uh, to, to make sure that we are able to execute uh, agile combat employment, you know, operations and be successful in that uh in that scheme of maneuver uh, it it also sparks some um, I, I uh, a friend of mine uh he's lieutenant colonel in the marine corps logistician and he's been working on foraging efforts uh in, in the marine corps and, and teaching you know young officers uh and enlisted how to forge for food right because that's not going to be a guarantee that we're going to be able to deliver food in the future fight right uh, we need you know we need to be able to uh, to forge for water for for meat for w- whatever it may be, um, because sometimes logistics is only going to be able to deliver, pol and ammunition, right? Mm-hmm. Like some and, and then also I mean and he's also actually working on another project uh, about how to forge for fuel as well, um, yeah. because you know different you know different requirements, but um the 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 future fight or a future battle space given the. The complexities of of warfare, um, you know, whether it's the cyber domain to even you know the what we think is you know simply conventional uh, is is going to offer you know so many challenges that you know we need to think of every single contingency to be successful, as you well know.
1: No, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a great point, and and I I think um, you know, one one thing though, you know, you sounded a little defensive talking about uh, the creature comforts of the Air Force. You know, and, and oh, I wasn't police. defensive. I was completely well, agreeing
0: with you. No, completely agreeing yeah,
1: well, with you. Well, no, I, I just I just want to make this point that, um, you know, I've served in most joint units, so I had the benefit of, of service. And of course, our inter-service rivalry, and I even made this comment, you know, it was great living on an Air Force base, you know, as an Army guy. Uh, you know, I made that comment in the beginning of this, but, you know, inter- inter-service rivalry, we, you know, we say, yeah, always the Air Force knows how to have a base and and have the creature comforts and everything. I I do think that all the services can learn from the Air Force, um, and and that is and that that emphasis is not so much on creature comforts. It's about readiness. You know, it's about making sure. You know, I mean, we understand, even though we we badmouth it. You know, that there's got to be crew rest. You know that uh, and you know the Army guys. We love to say, you know, I can work. You know, I can work twenty four hours, thirty six hours. You know, and then of course you hit a wall. You know, and and it's actually much better to have a good sleep cycle, you know, and and you guys, I mean, you know, airmen there, air, you know, that that know how to do that, you know, and and you, you know, because it's a marathon, not a sprint. And and so, um, you know, so there's a lot to learn about that. And we shouldn't be, even though we joke about it and we, you know, we'll we'll rib each other's inner service rivalry, but um those kind of things are really important. And um and and so and like I said, I think we can learn a lot from that. Um I remember when uh, I was, you know, on an exercise in Korea, and, and I'd been up for a long time, and I finally told my driver, I said, "Look, I got to get some sleep," you know, and, and he said, "Okay, yeah, just," you know, and I I went to sleep about three o'clock in the morning, and I woke up about eight o'clock in the morning, and the sun was up and everything, and I I asked my driver, I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well, uh, you know, third platoon needed to move, and the mortars wanted to displace, and and we put the anti-tank over here, and I said, and I looked at all this, and I, wow, that's really good, and and I I said, uh, I said how did that happen well they just called up and asked me you know they they were asking for you and i just responded how i thought you'd respond you know i've been watching you how, how to do this and i said man don't tell anybody that cuz i got an e4 driver who can do the job of a company commander you know <laughs> he did a great job but i was i was out like a light and he he was you know he knew not to wake me you know that i needed to get my sleep and uh, but even when i was asleep you know the the unit continued to function and i i say that and, you know that's something I, I didn't learn that from the Air Force, but looking back now, I can I respect uh, the idea of crew rest. And so, even though we uh, we, will, we will always ridicule it uh, from the other services, it's important. And and being able to to establish sufficient facilities in austere areas to continue that is important. And it's not about just having the creature comforts; it's about ensuring the readiness of the force. And uh, and so, anybody gives you a hard time for that. That's what it's all about. And that's what we should, we should be emphasizing.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's uh, a lot of that resonates with me, you know, thinking about you know, topics such as, you know, uh, not just crew rest, but that also ties into into mission command too, right? Uh, you know, being able to make decentralized decisions, you know, in a, in a forward environment where you're, you're not always going to have uh, the chain of command to to make those decisions, you know, for you. And I think about, you know, I, I know the the Army has been, you know, pressing forward that, that doctrine and, and perspective. I, I know with the Marine Corps and uh, when we look at maneuver warfare, uh, you know, and commander's intent, that uh, all of that is encapsulated as well. I think with the Air Force, um, we, it doesn't come as naturally uh, because of how top heavy of a service we are. But I think it's something that that we as logisticians, uh, you know, executing schemes of maneuver like agile combat employment that we need to be more comfortable with, that we need to, you know, continue to trust everyone from the four star down to, you know, the two striper or the no striper. Uh, so I, I think that's really cool um, that, uh, that you had that experience. But, I'll, you know, and then tying it into the crew rest in a previous life, I... Uh, uh, I, I spent four years, you know, training with the Marine Corps, um, you know, Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps. That's a whole other story. But in field exercises, you know, I'd go 40 hours without sleep, like literally just just go, 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 right? Um, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, like, I'm glad I'm glad I'm being inoculated to stress and I'm learning how to push my physical and mental limits. But at what point are we at a point of diminishing returns? <laughs> and, uh, and and at, and at what point am I making worse decisions? Uh, am I being less physically and mentally effective? Uh, so I think yeah, a lot of what you said was was really hitting home with me.
1: So to tie it to uh, reading, of course, we talked about Clausewitz, and and uh, what Clausewitz tried to do when he wrote on war, and his wife finished it after he died. Uh, you know, he was trying to develop the theory of war. You know, what is the theory of war? And so he was wrestling with that. But One of the concepts that he, he did, and of course, we hear about fog and friction of war and, and things like that, but he was trying to develop what what he called military genius. And and what is military genius? Now we look at that and wow, we can't all be geniuses, but we can all strive to be. And the way that he defined it and described it was he used the French word cadoy which roughly translates to the inward-looking eye. And what that was about was to be able to use education and experience to be able to cut through the fog and friction of war with less than perfect information, but exercise good judgment. That's what we should be striving for. And that capability at every level is necessary from lowest to highest. And and in today's world, regardless of whether you have the most advanced cyber capabilities, you know, know, C2 capabilities uh, to communicate with anybody, you know, you have all this information, you'll never have perfect information there always be, be fog and friction. Uh, and, you know, we have to learn to make decisions based on imperfect information. But you can only do that based on education and experience. And, and it's those two together that really give you the ability to make that that judgment. And that's really what Klauswitz was trying to, you know, he wrote that book to help military officers develop that. And that's something I think if we keep that in mind, all of our training, all of our education, you know, should be striving to do that. And it's especially important in mission command because we, if we have, you know, centralized planning and decentralized educa- execution, you know, you've got people operating with under mission intent, commander's intent with maybe no. I mean, you know, so, some of the things that we don't do well is conduct training without communications, you know, that uh, you've got your order issued and you might not be talking to somebody for the next week. You know, think about what that does to units. And you know, you're driving on and you can't make comms because of EMP or or something. You know, how are you gonna, you know, what are you gonna do? Uh and and you know, are you just gonna stop because you can't talk to anybody? Or are you gonna take your last order and you know, think through, you know, what comes next and what do you need to do? Anticipate what the plan, you know, how it will evolve over time. And that that's the kind of uh the kind of mindset and the kind of intellectual uh, uh, investment we need to make in all of our personnel, you know, from, from that no striper to the four-star.
0: Yeah. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. Um, Now, uh, I mean, I can talk about that all day, all day. (laughs) I got all, I got all myself back here. Um, Now to to tie it back to, it's a uh, IndoPaycom and, and talk about the budget a little bit and, so, and some budget constraints um we there are some you know unique assets you know on the uh on the chopping block you know the the special operations um you know basing vessels i think are are interesting and I think they're it's kind of like a like a shadowy topic right you don't really hear a whole lot about it you know they work with uh you know research submarines they work with you know all you know, all sorts of, uh, of different mission sets. And, and, but that's not the only asset that's, uh, you know, at risk of being cut by, you know, by the budget, but how, how can logistics airmen adapt to the constraints of having less, but doing more, maybe that's a, a Marine Corps perspective to have, but cause we're used to having the bright and shiny yeah. objects, but. Well, the, the
1: you know, the, the saying do less with more really ends up being do less with less. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, or, or do more with less, you know, it ends up being do less with less. Um, and we need to re- recognize that, you know, and, and we, we really do a disservice to our personnel when we, we sell, tell them to do more with less. Um, you know, and I think we have to reduce leaders have to reduce the demands when they have less resources. Um, and, and, you know, because, you know, the problem is the entire force is a can-do force. You're going you're gonna to make it happen with whatever you have. And uh, and, and that's the way it's going to be, which that, that's okay. You're going to deal with what you have. Part of the problem is, you know, for the last 20 years, we've lived with pretty fat budgets. And, you know, the, the mantra is support the warfighter. Whatever the warfighter wants, the warfighter gets. And, you know, so we had all these supplemental budgets and it became the OCO. Overseas contingency operation budget, you know, beyond the base budgets, and uh, and a lot of that, um, you know, we the military would like to have that OCO budget folded into the base budget uh, to sustain things, but you know that's not happening. Our military is the most expensive military, you know, in the world, and we spend more on it than any other than like the next 20 militaries. Uh, You know, our military budget is more, but it's finite. We can't we can't keep. you know increasing the defense budget um and so they've got to prioritize and and so i think i think one of the things you have to look at and this is something that i think every airman can do regardless of rank is look at piece of equipment organization you know base or whatever and how can you use that for something that wasn't intended i think that's what that's where you can really gain some i think some potential efficiencies and and i think you know cuz you've got your concept developers your doctrine people and they will you know they'll look at that well we're going to have capability x using base y you know to conduct mission z okay that's that's how it is well some smart guy out there you know who who may you know be an E4 or an E6 you know he can see something that that the senior people can't see and uh, and that needs to be encouraged and you know he might see how to do uh, you know, we might be able to have a truck that can refuel and, you know, do you know, sensing, you know, maintenance sensing and stuff like that. I mean, they can put things together in ways that uh, that that we never envisioned. And so we've got to encourage those uh, those visionaries out there. And regardless of rank, um, you know, we've got to be able to use bases for multiple multiple purposes. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and things like warehousing or preposition ships afloat so you mentioned the, the the ship there so when i was in the philippines uh we had the us naval ship stockham so it was in a float preposition ship it had uh, an engineer battalion a company of tanks and and its job was to float out and sea to be ready to to go to a contingency well the navy uh adapted that ship they put a helicopter on it uh, with a clear uh you know infrared uh sensor it had uh, they put a a brig on there for uh for prisoners and and things uh they put a scan eagle UAV launched off the ship uh on there and uh, uh and they put it in when i was commanding the joint special operations task force in the philippines it would it would be in our in the JOA, the joint operational area um and we would have it for 0. 0.75 presence per month so 75% of the month it would be in the and it would be supporting us, and of course, we would also use it to launch seals from uh, for for operations, and uh, you know, and so it, it would fly the Scan Eagle, give us some intel. Uh, it um, you know fly the helicopter with FLIR, give us another capability. Um, we would put Sigint interceptors on there, so they would be uh, intercepting communications, and then we could launch operations from it. Now that was a an afloat ship. Its only job was to float around. To, to be ready for contingencies, to offload tanks and engineer equipment, but it was very useful operationally for us. And um, you know, it—I it, it, mean—it provided capabilities and that for which it wasn't designed. And and so you know, smart people figured out how to, how to make it work and gave us capabilities that we just didn't have access to. And I that example, I think, can apply to many different situations uh, where you take something that it wasn't designed for. And you may be able to make it effective for something else. And that's what I think we have to learn to do uh, with, you know, austere environments. The other thing is that uh, we cannot become dependent on, you know, having the best, having the, the most, having you know, having the perfect capability for, for what we want. I mean, we have got systems now within DOD and the joint, you know, where we go through, uh, you know, you put in a, an operational need statement. You know, and it goes through the system, and they'll come up. You know, and ten years later, you'll have a new capability. And uh, you know, we we don't have that time to wait. Uh, but we also don't have time for somebody to develop the perfect capability. Uh, we've got to we've got to learn to take existing things that we have, and repurpose them, uh, refocus them, uh, and and things have to become dual purpose. Now, there's a double-edged sword for that. When you make things for dual or triple purpose. Then you can, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, less effectiveness across the board if it's trying to do too much. But that's got to be balanced, you know. And we have to look at uh, when you have constrained requirements, and that's what we really have, have to operate. And we have to operate with constraints, you know. Operate with lack of communications. Operate with a shortage of fuel, you know. Shortage of bases. Uh, long distances. You know, all those things that we need to do that in training, and training should be a laboratory. To come up with new ideas. I mean, if you if you conduct training and you don't come out with you know half a dozen new ideas or or different uh, uh, ways to use existing equipment or existing force structure, uh, then you're probably not training hard enough, or you're not listening to the people who see things that uh, that senior leaders don't see.
0: Yeah, I think that that ties in beautifully with accelerate, change or lose, and you know the you know the doctrine set. Maybe doctrine isn't the right word, but the the vision and intent set by uh, General Brown, and then also looking at Force Design 2030 uh, and the and the campaign of learning with, uh, you know, hey, let's let's identify, uh, you know, how we can leverage our emerging technologies, you know, optimally, you know, via the the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, you know, et cetera, right, and then entrusting the you know frontline warfighters with. Uh, with adapting those new technologies and, and and purposes, so I think that's uh you know I think that ties in great.
1: Trust is the, is the most important word used. I think that's we got to trust our our personnel. Uh, you know, and and you know, trust their ideas, trust their, uh, you know, their decisions. Um, I, I think that's that's the most you know, uh, especially operating in an austere environment without perfect knowledge, without perfect, uh, without the best equipment. Uh, We got to trust people to make uh, decisions uh, that are focused on accomplishing the mission. You know, that's something that, I mean, 99.9% of every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, guardian, coast guardsman, you know, wants to accomplish the mission. I mean, that's what they want to do. And, you know, they may have different ideas about how to do that, but I I trust them to want to accomplish the mission and do the best they can to do that. And I think that, you know, if you have that kind of trust in the force. That's where you're gonna see that adapt- uh, you know adaptability uh, you know agility uh, uh, you know creativeness and uh, and mission accomplishment
0: mm-hmm. uh, I love it love it all <laughs> uh, hey, david as as we wrap up here, um what you know you want to leave the audience with any other additional resources you know and books to dig into i, I know we uh, we talked about on war uh we talked about the art of war than um, the masters of war. Um, Are there any other, and unrestricted warfare, of course. Um, What has been the most impactful work uh, other than unrestricted warfare um, that that you've continued to refer to uh, to help sharpen your knowledge in the national security space?
1: Yeah, um, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, I have. Uh, I always show this this picture. This is this is my on war book here. Oh, I carried my. with this man every single deployment, my entire thirty years. <laughs> I've Always had. I always referred to that, and uh, and so that's always had a lot a big impact to me. But um, I you know I'd say that uh, it's not so much books. I'd say it's as I said, lifelong learning, and I think every military person really has to focus on, on five things that, uh, uh, that they need to focus on. Number one, of course, is military history. You've got to have a grounding in history. And so rather than one book, you've got to read a lot. You know, you've got to, have, you've got to want to understand our history, our military history, the history of our nation, you know, and really history of civilization. You've got to have that foundation. Uh, the second is military theory. Okay, how to fight, you know, whatever. You know, there's air power, sea power, land power. Uh, special operations—you got to understand the theories of war. Uh, so, military theory. The third is military geography, something overlooked. Uh, John Collins, uh, the late John Collins, wrote a really uh, a good book. Uh, he wrote some really good books on military geography, military strategy. Uh, John M. Collins. Uh, he's, um, you know, I got his his book on military strategy right here. I, I still use that for reference and. Uh, with military geography uh, right over here as well, and uh, and uh, but I, I use these books. Uh, you know, John Collins' work is a really, really useful uh, reference to to refer to. But military geography is not just the physical geography; it's also the intersection of people and culture and and the and the terrain, and uh, and so you you got to have a cultural approach uh, to the people, and then of course you have operational art the ability to campaign, and then strategy. So military history, theory, military geography, campaigning or, or operational art, and strategy. Those are the five things that everybody should be focused on. And regarding now, you know, that people will say, well, that that's all high-level stuff. Uh, I would argue that uh, in today's world, NCOs, junior officers need to know all of that. Now, you're not going to be a, a second lieutenant making strategy, but you need to know how you fit into strategy. You need to know your actions contribute to strategy. Every NCO uh, needs to, and, and you know the Air Force has a high level of education, but all of our military services do. We have a lot of uh, of NCOs who have college degrees, or even you know, master's degrees. Uh, you know, my one of my sergeants, uh, sergeants major, you know, he's got two master's degrees, speaks five languages fluently. You know, he's a retired SF sergeant major, and uh, you know, we have many many people that can do that. So. Those five things are what we really need to focus on, um, and you know I would take the reading lists from our, our commanders, the chiefs of staff, you know the the chief of staff, of the Air Force, the the uh, senior listed advisors, you know the the, the books that they re- they recommend. I think those should be read, and and they're always updating, so they're looking at current stuff. They'll have a few foundational uh, books that uh, you know I, I in special operations I always recommend. Um, uh, unrestricted warfare, you know, Sun Tzu. Uh, I recommend Gene Sharp uh, from "Democracy or from Dictatorship to Democracy" about the employment of nonviolent capabilities. Um, I, you know, I look at uh, um, you know Crane Britain's "Anatomy of Revolution." Uh, I look at Ted Gurr, why men fight, uh, and you know, these are some some traditional uh, works that uh, uh, that we should uh, you know people should be familiar with uh more more special operations and in, in the human domain. I, I'm a big proponent of the human domain. Uh even though you know the Air Force you're gonna be uh well think of it this way. North Korea, just to bring it home, one of the things they're most afraid of is U.S. air power. You know, U.S. air power in the Korean War devastated. And you look today, uh what we just did, Vigilant Storm, the exercise in Korea, which we extended it because of North Korea's missile launches, and, and now they're blaming all of their missile launches on that air exercise, 240 aircraft, you know that we we deployed, you know 140 South Korean, 100 American aircraft, you know major exercise. We extended it. They are deathly afraid of air power. You know we're focused on you know precision targeting and you know destroying targets and everything, but it's the human impact of that, the fear of that of that air power that is indelibly in, in, ingrained on the north, Korean people in the north, uh, and so and Kim Jong Un uses that. to to whip up fear, because he's afraid of air power. It has the most devastating effects. And so we need to understand that and keep that in mind. Even though the Air Force is highly technical, the Navy is highly technical, everybody operates in the human domain. And the effects of air power on human decision-making is really what we need to understand. Yes, we can take out targets, command and control, uh, you know, logistics, fuel, ammunition, you know, launch bases, telerector launchers, all that stuff. We can target all those, but it's the effects on human decision-making that, that we really have to study and understand. And so that, that's my, uh, my focus. And, uh, and I would urge everybody to, to keep that in mind while they maintain the highest levels of proficiency they have at their jobs uh, that are necessary for our national security.
0: I need to write that down and put it on a poster in my office (laughs) because that's a, um those are amazing words to live by, especially as a as a national security practitioner um and, and one last thing i'd i'd like to touch on is you know you, you talked about the the human nature you know of war right and the human element uh and the you know the technical focus of of the United states air force or really any air power entity in particular and, and i and i think something that is has resonated with me uh, in a book called the The Culture of Military Organizations, and it's a it's a conglomerate of essays or anthology, whatever you want to call it. And it 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 dives into air power entities and and their their engineering and technical minded focus and how that has evolved their cultures, right? And then how that has ultimately over time detracted from appreciating and understanding the human element. And, and and the human the the human nature of of, of warfare, right? And um, you know, and as we subordinate decisions to the health of aircraft rather than the you know the um, the the well being of of the warfighter, you know, of, of the airmen in particular, I think that you know that that could put us at a at a fundamental disadvantage if if we do not continue to center ourselves on um you know on, on the well being and, and the growth and the development. Um of that individual warfighter who's ultimately making those decisions, uh, whereas you look at the army or you look at the at the marine Corps, um where they are uh, you know a little bit more uh, well, I, I guess I say it facetiously, they're a lot more focused on that individual uh marine or soldier um uh, because they are the weapon system, right so so maybe it is kind of like uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know the word to use, but um, you know they they focus more on the on that the cognitive domain right instead of you know as as the uh, as the weapon system rather than the f thirty five the f fifteen b fifty two whatever it may be
1: yeah i you know there's i think that's those are the common ways that we that we tend to approach things i mean that inner server you know the service uh you know perspectives on on everything uh but i you know i would say that um you know one we talk about equipment and technology versus human. Again, it's got to be the right balance. I mean, you can't have one without the other. You know, one alone is not going to be a war winner. You know, you got to have both. And, you know, an air power takes, you know, tremendous amount of of human effort to keep those systems flying. And uh, and so uh, there has to be that balance. And, I, you know, we can't, the, the thing that we need to shy away from is not, you know, overemphasis on technology or uh, or, or the human element—it's—it's it's chasing the shiny thing and the silver bullets. Um, you know, this is hard work. National security—it—it's uh, there's no easy answer to anything. You know, we tend to though. To, I think uh, it's not so much that we focus on technology over the human. It's we're always looking for that silver bullet, that quick answer. You know, yeah, Sun Tzu said no protracted war has ever benefited a country. You know, that's true. We want we want things to be over and quick. When does that ever happen for us? <laughs> you know, and anytime. I mean, yeah, we had Grenada, we had just cause, we had a desert storm, you know. well, those three were anomalies. You know, you look at the war on terrorism, you look at, you know, what's going on, you know, World War One, two, Korea, Vietnam. I mean, no, no war's ever were over quick. Uh we need to be ready for that. And uh, uh so there's no no quick answer, no silver bullet. Uh there's no, you know, the Koreans will talk about decapitation of North Korea. Well, I, I guarantee you, even if we were able to to uh to uh, take out Kim Jong Un on the first day of battle, I think we'll still have some problems dealing with the the, the headless NKPA, uh, and so we got We got to understand that. Don't chase the shiny thing or the silver bullet. We got to do the hard intellectual work. You know, maintain our equipment. You know, keep developing technological and doctrinal concept solutions to problems, uh, and realizing that uh, it, it's more incremental than it is. You know, the the coup de main that, that'll be the the final. You know or the the easy out. You know it's it's hard work, and uh, and so we we just can't become enamored with the the silver bullet and chasing the shiny thing. We got to do the hard work of training, educating, uh, and uh, and maintaining.
0: Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.